Welcome back to another episode of the Excellence Cartel. Wow, I got tongue tied on that one. <laughs> yeah, he did. That's yeah. All right. <laughs> um, a lot of talking today for me, but today we have Peter Bond. He wrote this book called The Book on Steroids. And as you all know, is a book daddy favorite. I recommended this book. I actually wrote a review on it and we'll release it after the podcast. But um, it's a great, great dive. But first off, before we get into that and, and introduce Mr. Peter, uh, we got to announce the Physique Education Collective. So, guys, that's June 2nd. Party's kicking off at my house that Thursday night. It's free. Just swing by. You want the address, message me on IG. Friday, we have the morning tea and the afternoon delight with the three of us. So, this is your chance to, I mean, if you want to understand how businesses work or different questions, how to start a supplement company or any in depth case study stuff, then that would probably be the one to hit up. And then we have the Friday event at the gym, which is a barbecue or not a Chipotle, I think, dinner. And uh, we're going to have a cornhole tournament. So uh, tickets are sale there. And then we had the main ticket on Saturday from eight to four. Uh, we have Scott Stevenson, John Jewett, Jamie Pender, uh, Chanel Colette. Uh, let's see, Michael Clifford. And then am I missing anyone, Jay? Oh, J Justin Mahaley. Uh -huh. There you go. Yep. So it's going to be a hell of a ticket, guys. They're still on sale. We actually have, uh, as it stands right now, as of today, 35 seats left. So usually historically, as Thera told us, the numbers go flying at this point. Um, but anyway, if you guys are interested, theexcellencecartel.com. But Jay, how's your last seven days been, man? Um, it's been good. Uh, let's see. My 17-year-old had a soccer tournament this weekend in Indianapolis. So went to Carmel, um, Indiana, which is actually a really cool little town. Um, tons of cool things to do. Very upscale environment. Really liked it. Um, stayed at a pretty nice hotel called the Carmichael. Um, pretty pretty expensive room ticket. And um, I was really kind of annoyed. Like they have all these wedding banquets in there. And they don't they don't section off parking for like the people that are at the hotel. So like I had to park way down the road and I'm like, I'm paying to be here. So I had to discuss that with them. But um, overall, it was cool. They won their three games, had some good dinners, um, went to Prime 47, mm -hmm. went to Anthony's Chop House. Um and the weather was nice. Finally got some like sun for soccer. I've been freezing my ass off. It's like every time there's a game on the weekend, it's, it's been cold and rainy. Uh, so it was nice to be out there in a tank top and shorts and just watch and enjoy the field and the, and the boys playing. So other than that, um, you know, I'm, I'm just cranking along here. Um, nothing too much, I guess, to, uh, to, to note, uh, the, I guess I will tell you this, the website for advanced vitality HRT looks like it's going to be live May one, <clears throat> our NP did start today. So we can take on more, uh, clients. I'll be reaching out to coaches to let them know about us, but if you got any questions, you can always email me, um, about it. Um, I'm Jason. I'll just give you my Scooby prep. It's easier. Jason at scoobyprep.com. So I think that's about it. Nice. Hey, um, I was on a zoom with Tristan winners. Mm -hmm. You're mentoring his team. He told me to say hi. And he was real grateful for that from you. And I was like, yeah, I told him, I was like, you're a good dude, but that Tristan kid's sharp, man. We're bringing him on here in a few weeks. And yeah, he spent some yeah, time. Yeah. He has a, a nine, he has a team of nine already. Um, He's grown well. He's scaled quick and uh, he's doing really well. And yeah, I've been brought on. I, I hold a once a week mentorship with them and go over through my agenda that I use with my mentees and um, his team's on the call. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. I guess I give you a little loving. Yeah. For sure. All right. Uh, so for me, last seven days, were legit. Spent some time with a girlfriend in Atlanta. So that was a really cool experience. I got to unplug for a few days and just chill. Went to a Braves game and I found out what a stadium pour is, uh, where it's like what should have been two Tito's became four. So we were liquidated after that. Um, but had a great time, man. I was staying in this really hip like uh, area where basically it was like 50 yard walk from to like bars, restaurants, coffee shops. Uh, it was beautiful weather. So I was in my, my ripped up jorts and tank tops the whole time, except for the baseball game. Um, and then yesterday I met with that uh, hip surgeon for my second opinion and <laughs> she took like eight x-rays and she walked in and she goes, so how long you had that floater? 
And I said, floater, what are you talking about? And my girlfriend was on the phone on speakers. So that way, if I forgot any questions, she would, you know, be able to ask them. And she goes, well, you broke off part of your hip, your hip bones floating around in there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, well, that makes sense. Then when I push on my glute and, and I get relieved of that pressure. Okay. So she's basically, you know, with my brittle bone disease, osteogenesis perfecta, she's kind of like, Hey, this hip is done. So I go for a PRP injection tomorrow. The goal is to buy me time, but what they're looking at, they will have to remove the rod and let it heal for 12 weeks and then put the rod back in with a new hip. So that will go on. Um, I decided that I will compete next year. Like I told you about me and you begin to lay out the work this Friday. I'll do it next year. That gives me time to get healthy, get my body set up to do it. And uh, I'll finish it next year, hopefully at Masters Nationals um, and kind of see what goes on from there. Um, but I'm looking at two surgeries and I think I'm going to do it right after the show, like get blood work, get healed up and then schedule the surgeries and just knock that shit out. So it's fitting 28 years and I kind of end in the same way it started with a rotting and then and so forth. But, uh, you know, she told me yesterday, not everybody gets to keep winning. You know, eventually you lose. And I guess after 28 years, I'll take my knee um, and go out. So at least I can go out my way. I mean, yeah, I took the OI thing with the brittle bones and pushed it real, real far with bodybuilding, you know, and I have a lot of people who parents who were like that, you know, have messaged me over oh, yeah. my time. They were like, man, you gave us hope when all the doctors said it's not possible. I mean, even she yesterday was like, I don't know how you exist at all. So I just will help you best you can to get this done. And I was like, sweet tits, you know, best I can do. So, um, but that was it. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us. But how's your last seven days after you got through our little just diary of the mouth we just had there? Yeah, thank you for having me. Dude, um, thanks so for joining last, us. Yeah. So last Sunday uh, was my birthday. So uh, I had that going for me. Um, went to how visit you, my parents. Where did you uh, visit them at? Sorry? Uh, how old are you? Where did you visit them at? I'm now 31 years old, so I'm getting kind of old. <laughs> uh, and uh, they live about a one-hour drive away from here. Uh, okay. So I live in the Netherlands. Uh, they live in Volendam, and I live near uh, Utrecht. Um, so I went there. It was great weather uh, last Sunday. Uh, it was kind of cold the uh, weeks before, but uh, last Sunday was really nice. Could just sit outside uh, without a jacket, just a T-shirt, sitting in the sun, having a bit of chicken, uh, stuff like that. Nice, nice. really nice. Yeah, yeah. Nah. So what's it life like over there in the Netherlands? I've always wanted to visit, but I don't know if that'll be happening anytime soon with the world climate. But uh well, I think it's uh, not much different from the United States, I suppose. Um, except that we talk with a funny language. Uh and uh <laughs> we have a lot of bicycles and uh stuff like that. Um oh and our weather is pretty shitty, so we got a lot of rain. Uh, but I think like, you also have that in some parts of the U.S. So. Is it year-round shitty or just right now? Um, well, most of the year shitty. Uh, oh. And during the winter, it can get really cold and also, Ooh. of course, shitty. Uh, and our summers are kind of okayish, but very unreliable. So we don't have two or three months full of sun. No, we oh. have like one or two weeks of sun, and then we all hell breaks loose for a week. And where are you at again? The Netherlands. In the Netherlands. Okay, got it. Jason's like noted okay. never to go. <laughs> find the, find I love the warm weather and sun. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I picked up your book, book on steroids, and like we were discussing, and, and this is like a testament to what people know and don't know. But in John Jewett's university course, which is a great online resource for coaches. Uh, when I was going through the references, because I always like to see what's out there, because, you know, it's nice to read the research and John does a great job on that. He mentioned Peter Bonds for some of his stuff. And uh, Peter, I Googled it because I was like, well, I'm going to find out who this guy is. And it was a book called Book on Steroids. Well, before he did this, Peter had no clue that John had even mentioned him in his class. So it just lets you know, like how, how cool it is to get someone who's just like, oh, I wrote that. And, and you didn't even know like where it was being used and, and so forth. But dude, what inspired you to write this book? Cause from a coaching perspective, you know, we have a lot of coaches who listen to us and a little bit more advanced trainees and stuff like that. And uh, people who are on different therapies and so forth, which we'll get into all of those questions, but 
what made you put together and, and resource a book on steroids? Because, I mean, it's very in-depth, dude. You've got orals versus ejectables. You've got a chapter on hepatotoxicity. You've got a chapter on, you know, brain inflammation and how, you know, certain steroids affect the brain, you know, neurotoxicity. You've got all the way up to diuretics. So what made you put together like this comprehensive little book? It's not little, but. Yeah. So I'll kick off a bit with a small introduction, like how I got into this field in the first place. Yeah, no, kick uh, it off. Roll it. Yeah. So I started lifting weights when I was about 17 years old. Uh, just like any regular gym rat, I was tall and very skinny and I wanted to put on some muscle. Uh, so I went to the gym. A friend from class took me with him. And after the first couple of weeks, I started to read online about how to train properly. And then, of course, you also get in touch with the nutrition side of things. And I think it was like one or two years later, um, uh, you eventually get in touch with steroids uh, on the Internet when you read about training. So I started reading about steroids. And it was also around that time that I got a bit into uh, physiology um, just out of interest, because I was studying something completely different. I studied computer science. Um, and yeah, for some reason, uh, I just really liked the intellectual stuff in the field uh, surrounding anabolic steroids. So I uh, started reading papers, uh, which at the beginning I didn't really understand much of. To be honest, I didn't have a good background in physiology or cell biology and stuff like that. Um, so after a while, I started reading textbooks about it, uh, kicking off with uh, molecular biology of the cell, like the main textbook around cell biology, and just started reading physiology books for fun. Uh, and then while I was doing that, I continued reading about steroids. And something I noticed uh, online was that everyone had a different opinion about them. So... Uh, that person said A, the other person said B, and then the other person said C, and it was like, okay, who's right? Because they can't all be right at the same time, because they were usually mutually exclusive opinions. Um, so that was kind of what drove me to uh, read everything myself uh, about it, because um, I couldn't find a single consistent uh, logical source on it, to be fair. Uh, and when I started reading about it, uh, or well, I already read a lot about it, but when I more in-depth started to read about it, I noticed that, uh, in all honesty, in the scientific literature, there isn't that much known about anabolic steroids uh, if you're looking at clinical trials, because there aren't many. So trials with humans in uh, representative dosages that you see being used by bodybuilders and powerlifters and all the other kind of athletes, there aren't that many. So there's a lot of uh, extrapolation going on from other populations or from lower dosages or frankly from animal experiments or even uh, cell studies. Uh, and I think that's perhaps the main reason why there are, or a reason why there are so many different opinions about anabolic steroids because you can always find some cell studies saying this or some animal studies saying that. Um, and it's very difficult to extrapolate it or say something solid about it. Um, so in 2014, I published my first book about steroids in Dutch, um, which covered a lot of the biochemistry behind it. And uh, well, mostly the cell studies, uh, so to say, because uh, most studies about anabolic steroids have been done either in animals or in cells, in dish petri dishes. Uh, and then a couple of years later, uh, I think it was 2018, something like that. I was like, uh, maybe I should write an English book about it. And a common complaint I had received about my first book was that it was too technical and had very little practical applicability, which was correct because it was mostly the biochemistry behind it. Um, so that's when I decided like, okay, let's... I put up a draft of the table of contents, like, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, uh, discuss all the main or major side effects of it and see what uh, I can find about it in the literature and try to put everything in the context of anabolic steroid users. And uh, after two to three years, uh, that book is the final result of that. 
Very cool. You actually did talk about one study in the book, which um, <clears throat> was the 600-day dose to met like 25, 50, 125, 300, and 600 milligrams of testosterone F8 weekly. You actually yeah. went over that study, and that was referenced, I want to say, quite a bit throughout your book because that was like the only one from your book that you were saying really had any kind of like data to be able to go off of. <laughs> When you found that, how did you start breaking that down? And what are your thoughts when you start getting up to that 600 milligram dose? Because, you know, I mean, you're, you're seeing Jason and I have been around since like the 2000s. So, I mean, we came from the John Romano era of show us the body bag. So, you know, it wasn't much to see guys doing one and two grams of test. So I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, what do you think of that study? One, you know, because you obviously ran through ran it through the ringer. But then two, do you think there was like an upward dose amount that it starts getting just severely backwards and what that might be? Yeah, so there are actually uh, a number of trials in which they used that uh, dosage. Um, mm -hmm. So Shalender Basin, he, the first one he did uh, was in 1996, which was 10 or 12 weeks with the 600 milligrams of testosterone unitate weekly. And then he did another one uh, 20 weeks long uh, in which it wasn't combined with exercise. The previous one was, uh, which he did in young men. And then he did another one in older men. And then he did yet another one. Uh, I think it was in middle-aged men in which they either combined it with a placebo or uh, with the 5 alpha reductase inhibitor. So there are uh, four trials from the top of my head with uh, such a dosage. And so the... Interesting thing here is that study was published in 1996. And up till that point, if you pick a physiology book, textbook from pre-1996, you'll see the doctors speculate whether or not anabolic steroids work in terms of uh, being actual anabolics that, you, that they promote muscle uh, mass. Because um, before that trial, there wasn't a properly set up trial which investigated that. Um, so it was merely speculative in the literature that anabolic steroids actually worked. And of course they worked and they worked pretty damn well. And so that was a turning point for the medical literature. Like they finally had proof like, Hey, if you uh, take large doses of anabolic steroids, testosterone, you grow quite some muscle. Um, <clears throat> and what the other study uh, showed uh, but first, let me go over the first study, the 1996 one. Sure. So uh, what they did was they, uh, from the top of my head, I haven't read that one in a while, to be honest. Um, but you had an exercise group and a no exercise group. Correct. That was one uh, that was mentioned. Yeah, I think that was the 1996 one. Uh, and basically, they just uh, looked how it uh, went compared to a placebo uh, and the placebo group, after two, 12 weeks of exercise, they gained something like uh, in the range of two kilograms or four to five pounds of lean body mass. And then the testosterone group, it was something like seven kilograms uh, in that range of 15 pounds of muscle mass or a lean body mass, not necessarily muscle mass, but lean body mass. There's a, a bit of a difference there. Um, so in a, a way, it showed like it's, tripled your gains more or less uh there are quite some caveats to that uh, but yeah that's a really nice result i'd say for uh three months of using testosterone uh, and what it also showed was that uh strength went up quite a bit as well so it didn't just make you look bigger it doesn't didn't just make the muscles grow it also made them grow stronger uh which also was quite well known uh, among the athletes uh, up till that point already for decades. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was the turning point in the literature, so to say. And then the follow-up study, which was an interesting one, uh, it was 20 weeks, also in healthy young men. Uh, and it wasn't specifically mentioned in the paper that they were resistance trained, but I have a feeling they were, or at least, uh, on average, they were because they bench pressed something like 90 kilograms at baseline, uh, which on average isn't what you see in untrained populations. 
So these were actually guys who already had some lifting experience at least. Mm -hmm. And they told these guys like, don't exercise for 20 weeks, just sit on your ass basically. And what they saw after those 20 weeks was that even with those instructions, they gained quite some muscle and they grew stronger. And what they also did was take muscle biopsies uh, from uh, selection of these men to further validate that it was muscle growth. And indeed, on the muscle biopsies, they saw from the individual muscle cells that they had grown quite a bit in the cross-sectional area. Mm. Um, so that was like also the final proof, like uh, the lean body mass measurements we're seeing the increases on. It's predominantly really muscle mass uh, that's making the measurement increase and not something else. Peter, do you know if those uh, people that were in this study, was it their first cycle ever or had they cycled in the past? Do you know? Uh, it isn't specified, but uh, I think it's fair to assume that it was their first cycle, uh, at least for the vast majority, um, because in general, the, uh, the percentage of people who have used steroids is just a few percent. Uh, so if you recruit from a population uh, kind of at random, uh, you'll end up at most with a few percent who might have used steroids in the past. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't specifically mentioned, and I wouldn't uh, assume uh, that they had done previous cycles. I think it's a fair assumption that uh, for all, if not almost all participants, it was their first uh, encounter with embolic steroids. Yeah. Cool. I think that matters just, you know, in terms of the 15 pounds in the 12 week group, you know, I think uh, if someone who's been training for years took that dose, I don't know that they would also get 15 pounds. So that was my um, curiosity there. So. Which led into that argument that you not argument that discussion you and I got into, I said, knowing what I know now, my first cycle, I would have blown the doors off a little bit higher than most people probably would have just because you get that big effect and he literally that study showed that like because most people like i'll start a 300 test i'm like no (laughs) you know like like first time up hit the gas like you know it's it's a different way of doing it and we can get into all that but um i didn't know if you had anything further you wanted to wrap on that and i wanted to ask jay if he had any question he had a question i do i have questions um, yeah, so one thing, because uh, they compared various doses, uh, like you mentioned, the 2550, 125, two, uh, 300, and 600. Correct. And what you kind of saw, it wasn't literally a linear, linear increase in muscle mass uh, with the dose, but it kind of approximated it. So 600 milligrams uh, of testosterone initate weekly gave almost twice the increase uh, in muscle mass uh, over time. Uh, and what was interesting uh, was that the side effects weren't that different uh, between these two groups uh, in the young men. Um, so in that regard, uh, whether you start with 300, 600 milligrams, side effect wise, there don't, doesn't seem to be uh, a big difference, at least. Uh, there might be small differences because a trial like that can't uh, detect those differences uh, because it doesn't have enough subjects to do so. Um, But a nice contrast with the same trial in older men was that you saw that uh, they had more side effects. Uh, In particular, I think it was edema uh, was occurring more in the 600 milligrams group compared to the other groups. And there was another one which I forgot, Um, but uh, they did gain, uh, just like the younger men, they were as responsive to it in terms of muscle building, but they appear to have a higher sensitivity for androgenic side effects uh, because of their older age for some reason. Hit him, Jay. So um, I would like to uh, at least discuss uh, what I call the golden elixir or trimbalone ace. Um, (laughs) You know, there's no... It seems to me in the 15 years I've been coaching and watching athletes uh, chemical that will change the body more rapidly than trend. So, you know, we hear it's super tough on the kidneys. Then you'll read, oh, no, it's really not. You'll hear that it's it zaps serotonin. So now you've got neurotransmitter imbalances. 
can you give us, I mean, you've researched this. Can you give us a skinny on it? Like, is it really as, as, as toxic and is it really as stressful to the body as, as a lot of people lead us to believe? Well, the evidence-based answer would be, we don't know because there aren't any clinical trials uh, with Trembolone. Um, so we have to resort back to uh, animal experiments and simply just looking at other drugs from the same class, so other anabolic steroids, what mm -hmm. they do. So with regard to the kidney, uh, in principle, there isn't good evidence that anabolic steroids harm the kidney outside of the uh, increase in blood pressure they might cause. Yeah. Um, so that's one there. Uh, there has been a prospective observational trial with 100 bodybuilders, which self-injected uh, their cycle. So they, what they did was this, uh, they took these 100 bodybuilders, they took health measurements uh, before the start of the cycle. So on day zero, so to say, then they took the same measurements again at the end of the cycle. So when your health would be in the worst shape, sort of say, because it was right at the end. And then they took measurements again, three months after the cycle and the year after the start, uh, the year of start sounds weird, but that's uh, for practical uh, issues, a good solution. Cause if you do a year after the end of the cycle, um, if someone cycles for a year, you need your trial to be at least two years for this single subject. Uh, so it is kind of solved it like that. Um, and in this trial with these 100 people, uh, some also took Trembolone. Um, but the important message here was that they didn't see any clinical signs of kidney damage in any of the subjects. Um, so if anabolic steroids are damaging through the kidney, including Trembolone, they aren't um, notably so. They if they are, it really is, it needs to be something that accumulates over time. Uh, and if you look in the literature, the only thing um, you'll see is this uh, so-called focal segmental glomerosclerosis, um, which is like an umbrella term for a sort of disease with the kidneys. Uh, um, so some damage is inflicted to certain cells of the kidneys and then they give it this name and so this disease has been reported a couple of times in the literature for some anabolic steroid users but um even then it's only are a few cases so it's not very prominent and what you also notice with these cases is that uh, one these were really big guys usually uh, bmi over a 30 at least uh, and so we're talking about guys around 120, 130 kilos. So well in excess of, uh, 225 pounds, way more than that usually. And, and then also that they usually have been taking anabolic steroids and other drugs uh, for several years. So it's a bit like, hmm, maybe under certain conditions, if you're really freaking huge, uh, you've been using anabolic steroids and other drugs. Uh, for a long period of time, then yeah, um, kidney damage can definitely ensue, serious kidney damage. But uh, to say that Trembolone in particular is damaging to the kidneys, there isn't really any evidence for that. And I wouldn't know why uh, Trembolone in particular would be damaging to the kidneys. Um, there's no real reason to assume that. Uh, one thing you mentioned is that there's no other drug which make people look like they look then on Trembolone. Um, so this is a bit hard to say something useful about, but I think one thing that might be at play here is that uh, Trembolone might, and this is not really certain, but it might bind to the uh, aldosterone receptor and function as an antagonist. So in effect, uh, Trembolone might act as a, uh, diuretic essentially so it wears off uh, water which will make you look better um, so if this holds true because this is speculative from my side and uh, there isn't evidence for this for trembolone in particular but there is for a very related compound uh, methyl trembolone uh, which definitely acts as an uh, aldosterone receptor antagonist and if this also holds true for Trembolone, then in ascension, 
essentially you got an anabolic steroid and diuretic in one, uh, which might explain some uh, of that. Okay. Doesn't trend also bind to the glucocorticoid receptor? So therefore, like there's there's a theory that it helps suppress that end of it. So therefore, you'd be burning through, you know, uh, glucose and so forth quicker, correct? Um, that, that, that um, from, yeah, from what I remember, it has very low affinity for the glucocorticoid receptor. Okay. Um, so it, I don't think that's the mechanism, but what can be seen in some animal experiments is that it does uh, counteract some of the actions of glucocorticoids and mm -hmm. it also decreased uh, glucocorticoid receptor expression right. uh, in some experiments. Um, but the question is whether or not it's an effect specific for trembolone because what's usually done with these studies is that they investigate a single compound and don't compare it to other compounds. So uh, what could be the case is that if in the same experiment, they would have also used uh, boldenone or some other androgen, uh, they might have found the same results. We just don't know because they haven't tested it. Um, what I do know is that uh, for testosterone, it doesn't seem to uh, do this, which might be a result of it uh, aromatizing, who knows. Um, but I don't know of any direct comparison with another non-aromatizing androgen. So it's really hard to say if this is an effect specific to Trembolone uh, to begin with. And it's also very hard to say how this expresses itself clinically, if it's clinically meaningful or is if it's just a blip that we see when you do cell experiments. Um, what about the um, serotonin side of things? Zaps it pretty strongly? I know very little about that, uh, to be okay. honest. Yeah, okay. so I can't really comment on that. Okay. I know what you're referring to, and I, I've never been able to find something on that either. The only thing I think I saw was that there was a study with animals that showed that trend might have like a neurotoxic effect. Um, mm. But I don't think they understood where it came from, and there was not much said about gut where the serotonin was or something. Okay. Yeah, I think which study uh, that is, and I did the calculations once, and the uh, concentrations were completely ridiculous from what I remember. Oh, I'm sure they like, were like... Completely <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. I'm sure it's off the charts. You know, usually some of those times when you do the calculations, like, yeah. well, that, that was obscene. Um, but since we're on the topic of trend, I wanted to ask, stacking steroids. So, you know, knowing what I know now, I already said I would go a little bit higher on everything but are there certain steroids because you got multiple options so you've got for example the 19 nors trend uh nandrolin you got primo you got mastron you've got veterinary drugs like boldeon uh you've even got orals is there certain benefits to stacking that the research shows or that you have maybe looked into that some are better than others some have better synergy and and things like that any certain ones to stay the fuck away from completely and just not even try to screw with? Well, in terms of what the research shows, uh, I don't think there's a single clinical trial which has actually investigated that. Fair. Uh, so what you're left with is uh, speculating on some of the, uh, mostly the metabolism of anabolic steroids. So from testosterone, we know it metabolizes to uh, estradiol, so it can have estrogenic side effects. Uh, and if you... For example, you get gynecomastia, you could say, okay, I decrease my testosterone dosage a bit and I replace that part with a non-aromatizing androgen because uh, it will not aromatize, so I'll have less estrogen for similar amount of androgenic activity. So in that sense, there is definitely merit to uh, stacking anabolic steroids, I'd say. Uh, but this is quite an obvious example. Um, if you'd go about stacking uh, multiple non-aromatizing androgens, um, it's really hard to say if there's synergy. Um, I think even pharmacologically, it's really hard to even come up with something that it might synergize with. Because um, in a sense, you could say like, okay, um, I'm taking compound A that doesn't aromatize. And if I take it together with compound B, which also doesn't aromatize, uh, I take them together and it works pretty well. 
but what's not to say that if you just increase the dosage of compound A, a that it would also work pretty damn well, or just increase the dosage of compound B and leave out compound A. Um, because there aren't many reasons to assume that uh, there is true synergism between anabolic steroids. There are just probably some differences in uh, efficacy on a milligram per milligram basis. And also, uh, I suppose that some anabolic steroids might have uh, more side effects relative to their anabolic potency. So one example that, uh, and this is also really hard to substantiate with evidence because there aren't many trials, but uh, so personally, I don't use anabolic steroids, but I've had a lot of clients who use it. I've been in touch with hundreds of anabolic steroid users over the years. And a common theme I found was that, especially uh, a few years ago, people would tell me, uh, I like Primobolan, but I need a lot of it for uh, uh, muscle building effects relative to other compounds. So I went thinking like, okay, why might Primobolan be a relatively weak steroid? What's uh, going on there? So when you look in the literature, you see that its affinity is very similar to that of testosterone. Uh, but something that stands out is that uh, Primobolan might be broken down in skeletal muscle tissue. So what you have then is an anabolic steroid which gets broken down in skeletal muscle tissue, but it might not get broken down in the scalp, for example. So then relative to other steroids, it might be worse in terms of your hair falling out, for example. Um, and I think this is also one of the reasons why, because you'll see no one uh, do a steroid cycle with DHT, with dehydrotestosterone. Uh, at least I don't think I've ever met anyone who used DHT in a cycle. And I think this is one such clear example in that from DHT is very clear that it gets broken down in skeletal muscle tissue. Uh, and it does so quite rapidly. So if you would use it, um, it would have quite weak anabolic properties while still having quite solid side effects. Uh, and I think... Uh, that's also why the pharmaceutical industry isn't really interested in it for the most part, although there are some DHT preparations. Uh, and I think that's also one of the reasons why steroid users uh, never really got caught into it, because it just doesn't work. Uh, I mean, it will work if you just use enough of it, but it will come at a price of side effects. Uh, but outside of the DHT example, it's really hard to find enough literature to substantiate that some anabolic steroids are a better or worse fit than others. Because uh, for, for primobolan, there is some evidence that it's, uh, it's without a doubt that it gets broken down in skeletal muscle tissue. But the question is, at what extent? Is it like just very slowly happening or is it something that's very rapidly happening? Or is it somewhere in between? And that's something you can't answer with the uh, current literature. But I suppose that would be an explanation why some people or most people, I'd say, tell me that Primobolan works, but I need quite a lot uh, of it compared to other steroids to get enough of an effect. Jay, you yeah. want to take one? Well, because we talked about Primo, um, you know, for me, I've seen that it doesn't impact labs as harshly. Um, and then I've also read that it can help actually gain muscle tissue in a deficit. Do you have any ideas, thoughts about any of those? Um, anything that would be, yeah, that I could see why or no, that's probably not the case. Um, I'd be curious. Yeah, so in terms of uh, getting muscle in a deficit, I think that for the most part will be the same across all steroids. Um, the way they are anabolic is very similar for all of them. It just works through the androgen receptor. Um, what remains is uh, that there might be some small differences in inhibiting muscle protein breakdown through, for example, glucocorticoid inhibition. Uh, but that's... Uh, well, a pretty large question mark uh, whether or not there are substantial differences between the uh, different steroids. Uh, 
Yeah, that's something you can't really answer with the literature because it ha doesn't have the data on it. Um, so yeah, that's there. If yeah, there isn't that much simply because of lack of data. There are some clinical trials on primobolam. Um, but the annoying thing is the only trial they did in healthy young men was with oral primobolam mm. uh, with a relatively low dosage. So it doesn't say that much. Mm -hmm. And it didn't do much in that trial, which isn't too surprising. Mm -hmm. uh, and all the other trials, they're usually with uh, postmenopausal women or some patient group, which has some serious, very serious issue, uh, which uh, inhibits them with physical activity or something like that. So you can't really uh, draw from that. And in terms of how harsh it is on certain health parameters, it's very hard to say too, because there isn't really uh, good evidence on that either. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, the uh, one of the few certainties, certainties that are out there is that the oral anabolic steroids with the 17-alpha methyl group, those are pretty harsh on the liver. Those uh, across the range increase LDL cholesterol quite significantly, and they're very potent at suppressing HDL cholesterol. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're also, in most people, they lead to elevations in these markers of liver damage. And uh, those are the only anabolic steroids for which you definitely see quite some cases in the literature of liver damage. Um, and another certainty is that almost all anabolic steroids, if not all, uh, decrease HDL cholesterol, at least to some degree, uh, and that they uh, increase uh, hemoglobin levels or hematocrite levels, uh, which they also mostly seem to do to the same degree, although there's some literature pointing towards the oral anabolic steroids being not so effective at that, uh, but that might be uh, misfinding because of the dosages they used. Uh, but other than that, there aren't that many certainties uh, about the differences between anabolic steroids in terms of their impact on health. Um, the trial I mentioned earlier with the 100 anabolic steroid users, uh, they tried to correlate certain anabolic steroids with certain side effects from what they either saw uh, in the blood measurements or what they saw uh, with uh, measurements of the heart, because they also did an echo of the heart in uh, quite some of these bodybuilders. And from the top of my head, the only difference they saw, like obviously with the oral steroids, those were very hard on the lipids. And they saw uh, an increase in platelets uh, that was more pronounced with oral anabolic steroid use. But other than that, they didn't really find differences between the an different anabolic steroids in terms of blood pressure or what they saw on the heart or all the other uh, blood parameters. I, so I, if there are differences, then there's a good chance that these differences are pretty small. Got it. Um, I was actually going to ask you then. Okay, so since you said you didn't haven't used steroids, and but you've talked to hundreds of users. What are your thoughts on people who take, say, contest prep, multiple injections and multiple orals? What's been what you've seen? What are your thoughts on that with the literature? Because, you know, I mean, it's not for nothing. But I mean, the last four weeks, it's usually open chemical warfare. You know, you got Mastro and you got propanate, you've got uh, Trend, you've got Winstrol, you've got Halotestin maybe coming in, you're crushing your estrogen. With with you know Remedix shit, you might even I've seen people do Anavar, Winstrol, and yep. Halotest in the last four weeks. So, yep. what do you make sense of that then? Because you're going to have people who are listening who are see those cycles. I've done them. I mean, I'm not even going to say. I mean, I've even told people to get get with it before it is what it is. So, what are your thoughts on that then? Well, the main thing I've seen, uh, which does work in pretty much everyone, is a higher dosage works better. Um, <laughs> so yeah i've seen really good results uh, with people using really high dosages uh, and especially if they shift from a relatively low dosage to a higher dosage then suddenly their lifts would go up their weight would increase uh, everything would go better uh, until they would get injured or stuff like that of course 
Um, so that's the common theme uh, that I've noticed in all these years. It wasn't really that hard to notice, to be honest. Um, other than that, I've seen a lot of different strategies, uh, sometimes conflicting strategies, and I've found it really hard to pinpoint which doesn't work, which does work, because, um, yeah, I've seen strategies fail for people that have worked for other people. Uh, that might mean that either uh, it, the strategy itself doesn't matter or there is a personalized aspect there that it makes the difference between the two people. Um, the, I think I've seen the most uh, pronounced differences uh, with diuretics. Uh, in terms of what does and doesn't work. I've seen some really shitty uh, diuretic protocols, um, which didn't really do what they were supposed to do or what the coach liked it to do. Uh, and I've had quite some people in my inbox who either ended up with problems from that. Uh, one got uh, admitted to hospital, uh, ended up not being something very serious, uh, but still, I think it's are some of these things that could be easily uh, avoided. Um, but yeah, as far as anabolic steroids goes, it's a bit like you say, it's a bit of a warfare. Just throw everything at it seems to work and see what sticks. Um, and uh, something which is also very difficult in finding out what works and doesn't work is... Um, so this trial with these 100 bodybuilders, they also took 272 samples of anabolic steroids from these users and got them tested to see what was in it. <laughs> and yeah, so um, from the top of my head, only uh, 13 or 14% of the samples uh, contained in it what the label claimed. Uh, contained the steroid in it what the label claimed uh -huh. and just that story so uh and around 30 percent had the steroid in it that the label claimed but also another steroid <laughs> and then there was something like close to 50 percent uh it only contained a different steroid than the label claimed uh, and like four percent or something didn't contain anything so almost everything contained at least a steroid um, but more often than not, it contained a different steroid than it was uh, claimed on the label. Um, and so that's, if you're talking with people and they think they're taking Trembolone or testosterone or whatever, um, pure statistically speaking, uh, in general, they're most often taking something else than what they think they're taking. Um, and I also know some of the participants from the trial it was conducted here in the Netherlands. Uh, so I know a few of those 100 people. Uh, and one guy, he, he pretty much said, I would bet my life on it that my stuff is real. Um, but yeah, it wasn't. So <laughs> oh, sad, dude. Um... He was very convinced about it. And the thing here is too, um, so those percentages i'm naming that's only about the steroid that's in it qualitative analysis not a quantitative so the those in it could still be half of it or more than it uh, i've seen some results from the uh, dutch uh, doping authority they did uh, on 30 or something samples uh, quantitative analysis uh, and there, those results were quite shocking they were very often quite off from the label very often it contained uh, like four or five other steroids in small quantities, like three milligrams per milliliter. It was just rubbish. And uh, I remember there was uh, Proviron, which actually contained tamoxifen and stuff like that. Uh, it was a wild west. Um, and I know from previous research also, which was conducted in very similar fashion about 15 years ago, that the situation was quite the so um, for at least 15 years and probably longer, uh, the steroid users, at least in the Netherlands, but I'm quite sure it's not much different in other countries, uh, most often take something different than they think they're taking because what's on the label isn't actually in their files. So that's a big uh, issue with trying to uh, derive experience from anecdotes. 
Yeah. You touched on diuretics and you said often, and that's where people don't get the results they're looking for. I've seen diuretic protocols with four different diuretics in it that taper water that start at 14 days out that make no fucking sense to like even look at on a piece of paper. Can you elaborate more on that? Because you devoted a whole chapter on diuretics. And dude, that was the part I put up. I said, this, if you're a coach, is worth your weight in gold to read this one chapter alone to buy the book. So I was curious on that. And then I had like two follow-up questions, maybe Jay, before we uh, wrap it up. I wanted to get you to touch on the diuretics. Some. Yeah, so uh, I actually wrote that chapter on diuretics because I was so annoyed by all the protocols I saw floating around on the internet and from the stories I heard from uh, other people and coaches who came to me with like, hey, this is my protocol. What do you think about it? And usually it was trash. It was a bit like you said, two weeks out, they started with something and they uh, did those oscillations and very weird stuff. And it just, I was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, and I even almost took that chapter out because it's, in principle, it has nothing to do with anabolic steroids per se. It just happens to be used a lot by people who use anabolic steroids for competition. Uh, but I ended up leaving it in. And I think the entire chapter can be summarized to a few sentences uh, like, avoid all diuretics, preferably, but if you do, just use a loop diuretic one or two doses, and that's it. Uh, loop diuretics work extremely well. And if you stick to one or two doses, nothing's going to happen to you. You're not going to die. You're not going to uh, have electrolyte imbalances from a single dose. The only danger with loop diuretics, uh, because they're so potent, is that you might actually get severely dehydrated, which can be life-threatening, of course. Um, so the message with that is, because this is something I see a lot of coaches do, they tell the person... Uh, to take all these diuretics and then also severely limit their water intake. Yeah, that's a bit of a recipe for disaster. Uh, just let the diuretic do its job. If you take a loop diuretic, uh, this is something you can test run yourself with a mock prep uh, quite easily. Uh, you can find the dose in which you'll pee out approximately three liters or four liters in just a matter of hours. And that's usually also all the water that you need to lose or can lose without uh, getting in a danger zone of being severely dehydrated. Um, so yeah, the whole chapter basically is saying just don't do this stuff. But if you do uh, take a single dose of a loop diuretic and uh, find out the right dose for you by starting with a low dose, do a mark prep, measure how much you pee in the next hours, and then if it's too little, you can increase the dose a little. Uh, if it's enough, then that's your dose and stick with it. And don't dehyd dehydrate yourself on top of it. I like that. It's Jay. very simple advice and it's, well, super effective. You'll lose a few liters on it. Why uh, not? The right dose. I have a question on it. <clears throat> so I've actually stayed away from loop diuretics because as I understand it, you're shedding potassium and salt and if you overdo it, you don't know which to add. And if you add the wrong one, you can stop the heart. So I've always used diazide, which is not a loop and it just gets rid of sodium. So I know if someone's cramping. I got to just get some sodium back in them. Is there a reason why you prefer the loop? Is there something I'm missing there? Um, or is it just because yeah. it's more effective? Well, the reason is you, you can't lose that much potassium with a single dose of a loop diuretic. Uh, it's okay. that simple. Um, the only so that's the problem with the uh, other diuretics um they uh they usually or some of them they need a longer time before they're sufficiently effective so these uh diuretics that work on the uh the latter part of the nephron um, so the aldosterone antagonist and yep. stuff like amyloride these spare potassium um, but these are also the things that you need to take for a longer period of time uh, before they're fully effective. Mm. Um, and the thing is, the moment you start using diuretics for a longer period of time, that's the moment that you can actually get electrolyte imbalances. Because uh, a single dose will never get you electrolyte imbalance. Okay. Um, 
it's as simple as that. The, the main issue with the single dose is dehydration itself. Um, and I think the reason people are so scared for loop diuretics is because they misunderstand them. They'll also use them for several days or weeks in a row, just like the other ones. Yeah, yeah that's a different story. Yeah. Um, and that's way overdoing it. Uh, so I think that there stems the uh, issue from with being scared of loop diuretics. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say they're the most effective and they're in principle the safest if you just stick with a single dose. Uh, it's as simple as that. You can imagine uh, this stuff gets prescribed uh, to millions of people around the globe. It would be pretty difficult to prescribe if you could die or get hospitalized after a single dose of the drug. Sure. Um, so what's usually done with these uh, diuretics is they get prescribed and then after a couple of weeks, there are no clear guidelines for it, weirdly enough. Uh, so it varies from one physician to the other. Uh, but after a couple of days or weeks, uh, they do the first blood measurement to see what's happening with your electrolytes. Uh, and depending on the diuretic, some other stuff. Uh, because these changes take a bit of time before they can actually bring you in the danger zone. Um, but yeah, of course, it can still go wrong with a loop diuretic if you severely dehydrate yourself and then on top of it, uh, take a loop diuretic. Um, how come you didn't include a chapter on growth hormone and a chapter on insulin? Because that's uh, like, I'm sure when you, that from what you've thought to, I'm sure you know that those two are massively in play even with just testosterone i mean it's nothing for me to cruise 200 megs of tests throw a couple i use a human log in pre-workout iu of gh you kind of keep baseline so i was curious what your thoughts were on that why you stayed away from those two um i'd like to say that i purposely left them out for a second edition um fair <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they will be added to a second edition, but no, the main reason simply was time constraints. Uh, I've been working on this book for uh, two to three years, something like that. And after a while, I was simply like, okay, I just want this book published. Uh, in uh, Primarily, it's about anabolic steroids and everything I'd like to cover about that is in it. Uh, the diuretics chapter was a nice extra. And then to also include uh, things like growth hormone, insulin, thyroid hormone, SARMs, stuff like that. It would just cost me at least another year because I just write this stuff during my weekends uh, or sometimes when I have a week off from work, I work on it. So I slowly progress uh, with a book. Uh, and something like that would cost considerable time for me to uh, get in it. Yeah, no doubt. Um, 565 references in your book, uh, which was, I believe, just a little over 200 pages, typical, a little bit bigger than a book, top to bottom when I got it mailed to me. Um, so you definitely are, were not lying when you said you spent a good two to three years putting it together because I saw your where all the research was. So I started getting into some of it. And I was like, well, damn, that alone right there to assemble that was at least... 18 months to two years to be able to especially bibliography all that out. Uh, the final question I have for you. Um, we've been around a long time. You've been in this a long time. You've obviously know people who are in the studies. You've researched this. Why do you think we're seeing the current rise in deaths that we're seeing in bodybuilding? Yeah. So this is, uh, I've been asked this question before too. I think it was, Ellen Aragon, who asked me the same question uh, not too long ago. So this is really difficult to answer. I think in part, the reason is simply because we currently know more bodybuilders uh, than previously. Because of Instagram, uh, there are a lot of more famous bodybuilders, so to say. Um, so the pool of people who can die and that we'll hear from is bigger. Uh, if you go back in time, 30 years, uh, the main figures we would know were, of course, the Mr. Olympia contenders uh, and some of the people who were in the magazines and were writing for them. And now uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Instagram accounts of big guys who aren't even necessarily competing or anything. They're just big and they manage to get a large following on their social media. Um, so there's simply a larger pool of people, I'd say, who can die and from which we'll hear about that they will die. So I think that's part of the reason. Uh, and what 
might also be at play is simply uh, that with the years, uh, usage has changed in the sense that people are taking higher dosages than in the past, and perhaps also uh, the inclusion of other uh, ancillary drugs, which might or might not uh, uh, be at play here too. Uh, you can imagine that uh, 20, 30 years ago, steroid cycles would look a bit different uh, on the average than what they do now. I think that really uh, might be at play here too. So those two factors combined, I guess uh, that that might explain it. I like yeah, that answer. Uh, I, think, I think that's valid. I mean, you know, I talk to a lot of guys. I mean, I'm 44. And so I have friends who, you know, they're 55. They've been in this for years. And, you know, they say back in the day on the off season, their cycle was two cc's a test. It was about 500 mix. And that's what they did. And then they come off 12 weeks and they would run that for 12 more weeks. Yeah. They didn't put any of the other compounds in until contest prep. But nowadays you got people running EQ, trend, you know, all these other ones while you're running tests. Um, so I, I, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, my question to you, uh, my final question would be if someone was going to do, run 600 milligrams of gear, is there anything to suggest that keeping testosterone and just using that as a single compound would be less stress or less detrimental to the body than say going 300 tests, 300 EQ? Um, my thought process is that test is made by the body. So would it be a little easier, but I'm curious what you have found, thought about, et cetera. Yeah, I, I'd side with that. Uh, I think, uh, especially for beginners, if someone does decide, uh, mm -hmm. to start on using anabolic steroids, that's something like that 500 milligrams per week or 600, uh, 500 might be a bit more practical because of the concentration in vials, which makes it two milliliters usually, yeah. uh, is a good, uh, balance between side effects and the anabolic effects. And from the literature, there's simply no indication that uh, stacking for that purpose, uh, if you don't know your side effect profile, so to say, so you don't know if you're prone for gynecopathia, for example, uh, there's no indication that stacking would be more beneficial than other things. And at least from testosterone with these dosages, we know uh, the short-term side effects. They're in healthy young men, they're very manageable. Uh, and also things like, uh, so we know that anabolic steroids, like they raise blood pressure a bit. Um, well, which is eventually over time, something detrimental. You would use anabolic steroids for 10 years and your blood pressure would be increased by it without treating it for 10 years. Then that's a bad thing. Um, but if you're testing the waters and it's your first cycle and your blood pressure is increased a bit for 12 weeks, yeah, you're not going to die earlier from those 12 weeks with a right. slightly raised blood pressure, you know? Uh, so I think uh, if you do use anabolic steroids, that that would be uh, a fair introduction uh, to it. I wouldn't recommend uh, something different now. Uh, Peter, dude, thank you for taking the time to join us. Like, where can everybody find you, follow you, buy your book, um, all that yeah. stuff? Because I thought your book was a really good resource. I mean, I've told a few coaches who've inboxed me stuff. I'm like, hey, man, like, I'd, I'd at least start there and then work my way up. Yeah, so uh, I have a blog on peterbond.org, uh, which I occasionally write something for. I'm not very active, so to say. Uh, and I have an Instagram account, uh, which is at peterbond.nl. Uh, weirdly enough, I can't change my username to at peterbond.org on Instagram. It just won't allow me. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not really that active on uh, social media. Um, but when I drop the second edition, uh, you'll see it there eventually. Uh, and you can order the book at bookonsteroids.com. Uh, very easy to remember URL. Yeah, no, man, I, I, I really I dived into it. I reached out to you once I finished it that morning because the diuretic chapter like sealed the deal. I'm like, OK, anyone who put that in there genuinely cares. I, I, I could tell that book was written from a place of caring enough to get the education put out there to really help the consumer and coaches make better choices for the consumers who are ultimately going to do what they're going to do anyway. And I, I mean, that was something that Jason and I came up on. We came up on like the boards, like pro muscle back in the day and, uh, and 
RX muscle forum. So for us, you know, those were open discussions because we wanted to help people out. And then now you have this other loud thing, which is like, take three cc's of trend every day. And I'm like, well, I can tell you that's probably not going to end very well for you. So <laughs> I really, I really like how you brought a book to the, the forefront about steroids that was just based on heavily on research. And then you put it out there. So thank you for taking the time and putting that together, man. Cause I think it's a really great resource. Thank you very much. Cool. Yeah. One of the main things I try to do with the book is uh, so set out the side effects, but also try to quantify them. Um, so how often they occur, what the magnitude of the side effect is, and what we know and do not know uh, with regard to uh, the side effects in the context of anabolic steroid use. And I also try to kind of educate when should you be worried, when should you do something about it, and what can you do about it, and what doesn't work uh, for it, or what don't we know uh, will work. Um, so I really try to make it uh, to some extent uh, applicable for the real world. So you can read it and think like, hey, I learned something and I can do something with this. Rather than just trying to impress the reader with uh, a bunch of research and then leave them with the idea of, I have no idea. <laughs> Good call, man. Well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Awesome. All Thanks right, guys. Oh, no. I will be bringing you back on. I'm sure down the road. I'd like to get you on a panel with some other guys. So I have an idea for that. But uh, guys, thanks for tuning in. And Peter, thanks again for joining us, man. Very welcome. Thanks.